Take your Bible and open up to John chapter 8. And uh, we are in verse 30, and although we're going to just deal this morning with the verses from 30 to 36, uh, I want to read to the end of the chapter, uh, because there's going to be elements in that section of Scripture that we're going to bring forward into the study, so I think it would be helpful to read it up front here. John chapter 8, starting in verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Then they answered him, We are of Abraham's offspring, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever, or the son does remain forever. If, therefore, the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you are of Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore, You also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and the truth does not, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, we do, not, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, uh, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. If I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for an opportunity to come this morning to worship and to hear from your word. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear from your word this morning, that we take the message that uh, you have left for us here through the pen of John, through the person of the Holy Spirit, that we would take it and seriously uh, contemplate its truths. We might examine ourselves and then make appropriate changes if any changes might need to be made in our understanding of the truth. Go before us and uh, open our ears to receive your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we are continuing on in our study of John chapter 8, recall again the fact that Jesus is in the temple. He's at the teaching there at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And immediately the words that kind of jump off the page to me, uh, at least, uh, is found there at at the start, uh, uh, verse 30, or verse 31. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that verse, or those verses there, really introduce the subject for this portion of Scripture. And I want to say right up front, I'm just going to introduce it this morning. It's not going to be an exhaustive study, but more just of an introduction to this, to this issue. And the subject from that portion of Scripture really is the nature of true saving faith. The nature of true saving faith. The nature of true discipleship. And that's because of what uh, John says just one verse previously. Verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. But the reality of the fact is not all faith or not all belief is true saving faith or true genuine belief, uh, belief that is salvific. Not all professions of faith are salvific. Now, that's a vital issue. It's an important issue in the Christian life. It's an important issue in the context of the book of John. Because if you remember our teaching, I mean, Jesus has been pretty hard on these guys. He has been attacking the unbelief of the religious leaders of Israel, and he's been teaching them the truth. Up to this point, they have completely rejected. He has proclaimed over and over and over and over and over again that he is from the Father, that he is, in fact, none other than God incarnate, God in the flesh. He is the one from whom rivers of living water flow, eternal life comes. He is the one who is the light of the world, the promised Messiah, the Savior, John 8 and 12. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But as you remember, the Jewish religious leaders not only rejected his words, the Jewish religious leaders wanted to do what? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. Martin Luther uh, calls the sermon that Jesus preaches to them, to these religious leaders, here in the temple, he calls it a dreadful sermon and an appalling and dreadful word of farewell. He preaches to them a dreadful sermon. Because the truth is, Christ is the truth incarnate. Everything he says is true. He comes and he preaches and he proclaims the truth. And, And those men, the religious leaders to this point, have rejected him. And those who reject the truth, those who will not believe, those who do not believe, for them, there will come a time of even greater darkness, a time of even greater despair, from which eternally there will never be any relief. You remember a few times back I told you there are only two choices in the world, only two choices with dealing with all of the issues of life and death and eternity. You either base your understanding of life and all the matters in life uh, and your eternal destiny on your own opinion, on your own fallen opinion, on fallen reason, And if you do that, the scripture says that will keep you in darkness for both time and eternity. Or you humble yourself under the teaching of the word of God and you receive rather than reject divine revelation. And then you live according to that truth, the light of the truth. Again, the truth set forth, given to us, proclaimed uh, by the eternal God who wants men to know the truth. Truth God wants men to know so that they would not perish. The truth they received actually makes every man free. Now again, Jesus is teaching in the temple. Go back up to verse uh, uh, 21. Verse 21. Therefore Jesus said again to them, I go away and you shall seek me and you shall die in your sin. Where I am going you cannot come. Now, the one thing that the Jewish religious leaders wanted anything, more than anything else was for Jesus to shut up. That's what they really wanted. They wanted him to shut up. They wanted him to stop talking, stop preaching. Exactly like the unredeemed today. The unbeliever doesn't want to hear the words of Christ. The unbeliever doesn't want to hear the truth. They want Jesus and people like you and me who follow Jesus to shut up, to sit down. Because the unbeliever and their foolishness, like the religious leaders in the text here, don't understand that when you reject Christ, Christ will depart from that people. 
When you reject the offer of the gospel, Christ will depart from that people whom he is offering the truth of the gospel. And that result of him departing, part of that terrible sermon, that dreadful sermon as Luther called it, will result in eternal, an eternally disastrous consequence for those who have failed to believe. Right? For those who have failed to believe, they're left in their darkness. And just like all unbelief involves ignorance and folly, the Pharisees, again, refuse to humble themselves and believe the reality of who Jesus really is. They're left in the dark. And left in the dark, they don't heed the warning. They wrongly think that they're on their way to heaven, when in reality, they are on their way to eternal hell. Their carnal minds have been blinded. Their blinded minds, the blinded minds of the, of the unbelieving religious leaders, uh, could, all that they could think of about is when Jesus said he was going to depart was, well, maybe he's going to kill himself, verse 22. Therefore, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, I told you, in the foolish arrogance of these religious leaders, the, the religious leaders were convinced they were on their way to heaven. And the only place that they could never go, the only place they could never go, would be hell. However, they're completely mistaken because they rejected the truth. And Jesus is warning them. I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He is warning them that they're not headed to eternal heaven. They're headed to eternal condemnation. They're headed to hell. And again, a very straightforward, again, I think out of a tremendous amount of compassion, Jesus just told these men the truth. The truth about them. The truth about all unbelievers. Verse 23 says, or says, He was saying to them, You are from below and I am of above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. That's truth. Every man born of the world, every woman born of the world, every man as a, natu- as a natural man, every man who has not been born again, every man who has not been, every woman who has not repented and come to Christ, you are of this world. You're part of this evil, satanically inspired system that is constantly opposed to the truth, constantly opposed to God, constantly opposed to Christ, and ruled by Satan. In fact, 1 John 5 and 9 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's a world that is perishing. It's a world that is under divine condemnation. Paul says 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why Jesus says, verse 24, I said therefore to you, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, remember I told you the word he is not there, unless you believe that I am, claim to deity, you shall die in your sins. Again, as I said before, they're really devastating words from the loving Savior demonstrating not only the the necessity of faith in Christ in order to be saved, but also the most tragic consequences of unbelief. You can say, well, I don't believe that. It's irrelevant to what you believe. I've used the analogy with you before, uh, the little word picture, but you can say you don't believe in gravity. You can open the back end of the jet at 30,000 feet, jump out, and say I don't believe all the way uh, to the ground, that you don't believe in in gravity until you come face-to-face, so to speak, or literally, uh, with the reality of how things are. Your opinion or my opinion is irrelevant. The only opinion that matters anywhere at any time is God's opinion. You shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. That's truth. And to die in your sin means to die with your sin unforgiven. And to die with your sin unforgiven means to face eternal conscious torment in a literal place of unending punishment. Place men should not be. Because God in his kindness has made provision for men through Christ that they would not be there because God the Father sent Christ into the world out of his tremendous love so that men would not have to perish. Verse 25. And so they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? What have I been saying to you from the beginning of my ministry? Nothing except the truth. Nothing except the truth concerning who he is, right? God incarnate. 
Again, the evidence is absolutely undeniable. We've gone over that repeatedly. He's repeatedly proved he is God incarnate by his words and repeatedly proved he is God incarnate by his works. No one ever worked the miraculous power that Christ worked when he was here. And then to that that list of unwelcome truths, he adds another one. Truths that they continually rejected. He adds another one. The fact that he is their judge, verse 26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize, verse 27, that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Verse 28, Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. You fellows better pay attention, because I am who I say I am. Where I'm going, you cannot come, and I happen to be your judge. And when you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am. Remember, I told you this is the, uh, uh, there's at least three different times uh, that John mentions the fact that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, must be lifted up. And again, all of those uh, referring to the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Because the cross, listen, the cross is always the center of true preaching. Because the cross always takes us to Christ, the object of our affection. It's the cross by which men are delivered from judgment as the innocent one dies in the place of the guilty, in the place of all who believe. It's the cross where God reveals his glory through which he accomplishes his eternal plan of salvation, the forgiveness of sin, through the only one who could pay the price for uh, sin's debt, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the God-man, the one whom uh, John, First uh, John 4 and 10 says, the Father sent in the world to be the propitiation for our sins. It's at the cross where man's stubborn rebellion is conquered. And those who are spiritually dead are now transformed and changed and made spiritually alive and willing and able to receive the truth, God's truth, and then live. When you lift up the Son of Man, you'll know. Verse 29, Jesus speaks of his perfect union with the Father and his perfect obedience. Verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Tremendous truths. And then you come to verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So I asked myself, well, what are we to make the verse 30 here? Are we to suddenly believe that there has been a spirit of repentance that Many of the religious leaders have come to believe upon Christ, or as the NIV says, many put their faith in him. In fact, verse 31 again, John says, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed. So so do we have genuine faith here? Have these people truly believed upon Jesus? That's where the rest of the passage, i got to go to a, a greater context to figure this out, right? That's where the rest of the passage comes into play. And that's where the principle that we're talking about this hour comes right to the forefront. The reality of not all faith is saving faith. And Jesus would later describe, in the remainder of the chapter, Jesus would later describe the same Jews who had believed, quote-unquote. He said of them, verse 34, that they're still slaves of sin. Right? Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Verse 42, he said, you really don't love me. If God were your father, you would love me. To those who could not hear and understand, Jesus said to them, verse 43, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my words. He describes these same, Jesus does, he describes these same quote-unquote Jews who had believed as those who are actually children of the devil. He says it in verse 38, verse 41, verse 44. I'll read verse 44. It says, You are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand to the truth. Because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus describes these same people who had quote-unquote believed as those who are actually those who refused to believe in him. Verse 45. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you're not of God. And again, these people who have supposedly believed 
have in fact blasphemed him. Verse 48. The Jews answered and said, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's blasphemy. Verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died. Whom do you make yourself out to be? They said he was demon-possessed. It's blasphemy. Jesus described these same, quote-unquote, Jews who had believed as those who sought to kill him. Verse 37, verse 40, verse 59. Verse 37, I know that you're of Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Verse 40, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. So what do you make of verse 30? He spoke these things. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Well, again, the truth is not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. And there is such a thing as unbelieving belief. There is such a thing as unbelieving belief or unsaved believers, if you will. Now, you say, that sounds pretty strange to my ears. I know it does, but it's true biblically. And this is not the first time that this issue has been raised in the book of John. <clears throat> in fact, we're going to do a little bit of turning here. So go back to John chapter 2. <clears throat> John chapter 2, verse John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing, verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. There is again a faith that is not a saving faith. There is a kind of belief that is really nothing more than unbelief, not saving faith, not saving belief. Because not every profession of faith is a genuine reality. There are false disciples. There are false followers of Christ. Now you might remember if you were with us when I went through this passage, I pointed that out. Verse 23, it says, Many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. I said that faith that rests on the miraculous is not a very substantial faith. That kind of faith, why? Because that kind of faith always wants more. Give me a bigger this or more that or, you know, it always wants more. A faith that rests on the supernatural is not a very substantial faith. And again, Jesus, who is God incarnate, who is God come in the flesh, he knows everything. He knows every heart, every thought. He knows whether someone's belief is genuine or not. During the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. That word believe, pistio, means to think to be true, to persuade of credit, to place confidence in the thing believed. Verse 24, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. The authorized version says Jesus did not commit himself to them. It's interesting that the word entrusting there in the NAS is the same Greek word, for believe back up in verse 23. It's pistio. During the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not believing them because he knew all men. Jesus was not believing their belief. Jesus did not believe in their believing. Jesus had no faith in their faith, no trust in their trust. Therefore, Jesus did not commit himself to them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew they were not true believers. Because he's the omniscient God and he knows all men, for he knew all men. So right at the beginning of the the book of John here, the beginning of the ministry of Christ, John introduces to us an issue that is very vitally important in redemptive history. The presence of false faith, superficial faith, artificial faith, a faith that does not save, unbelieving belief, if you will. Jesus, on his part, was not believing them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
So he's the omniscient one. He knows the state of every man. He knows the heart of every man. He's not going to commit himself to these people who say they believe in him because he knows they're not true. They're not true believers. And right up front in the book of John here, these words really stand as a stark warning to everyone of the terrible danger of being deceived concerning one's own salvation. Because the truth is not everyone who claims to be a Christian really is one. People can be deceived into believing that they're Christians, that they're saved, when in reality they are not. See the same kind of issue, unbelieving belief, over in John chapter 3. Turn there. Nicodemus, no doubt, was one of the people in chapter 2 who had seen the miraculous works of Jesus. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can uh, do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, I tell you what, Jesus is not interested in platitudes. Might as well save them. Verse 3, Jesus therefore answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Question mark, right, can he? And what Jesus says in essence next is, My friend, you'd better figure it out. You'd better figure it out. Jesus, verse 5, answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things. Nicodemus represents a group of people who have faith to a certain level in Jesus. They believe he's a teacher. They believe he's someone sent from God. He's somebody that can do these miraculous works that no one could do unless God was with him. But that's not sufficient to save. You see the same kind of believing unbelief over in chapter 6. Turn there. You remember the story. There's a great multitude of people following Jesus. Why? Because they're seeing the signs that he is performing on those who are sick. And then he feeds the 5,000. You might remember I told you probably somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 people when you include all the women and children. He feeds all this mass group of people from five barley loaves and two fish. He just instantly creates food in the presence of everyone. And the text says everybody was satisfied. Excess was... Uh, was everywhere enough to fill 12 basketfuls. But when Jesus, when the show of the dinner was over and Jesus started to get into the issue, right, started to teach the fact that he was, in fact, the bread of life, the bread from heaven, <clears throat> and that men must eat his flesh and drink his blood, John 6, verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Right? It's a metaphor for completely taking him in, consuming him in total, making him a part of them. Right? What did people do? They fled. Verse 60. John 6 and 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, the people who were following him, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who, excuse me, who it was who would betray him. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They were false followers, false disciples people who call themselves Christians, people who call themselves followers of Christ, but they walk away from him. When he starts making demands upon them that are pretty tough, they walk away from him. The reality is, therefore, they are unbelieving believers. 
Now, again, people are attracted to Jesus because the, some people are, at least because of the, the crowd, the, the spectacle. Some people are attracted to Jesus because of the supernatural element uh, of his uh, ministry. There's no uh, TV, no entertainment. Here's a big show going on in the desert. We'll go out there and see this, uh, this miracle worker. People go out and they're following Jesus because they want their felt needs meet, right? If anybody offers you uh, free food, they want to be supplied with free food. So we'll come out and get some of that. In fact, we ought to make this guy king. So why, why should we work? We'll make him the king and we'll have him do everything we want. But when Jesus demanded absolute allegiance, when Jesus demanded you take him in completely, absolute allegiance and preeminence, many people walked away from him. And of course, there in the story of John 6, the prototype of all unbelief and the prototype of all unbelievers, all false followers of Christ, all unbelieving believers, is Judas Iscariot, verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Well, Judas was a good follower of Jesus. Attended all the meetings. All the way up to the upper room. All the way to the night before he was executed, when he betrayed Christ. That's when Judas turned his back upon Christ. Judas believed, quote-unquote, upon Jesus until he betrayed him by his blood. So this issue of faith that is not saving faith, a belief that is not salvific faith, is true biblically, and it's a very important issue. Again, remember the thesis statement. Everything comes through this lens in John's John's work. John 20 and 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John is writing and telling these stories so that you might come to a true knowledge of the true truth, that you might come to a true knowledge of the truth. Again, understanding there's a kind of faith that is not salvific faith. There's a kind of a belief that saves no one. You have to understand the genuine from the false. Now, John, of course, isn't the only place in the New Testament where this issue is dealt with, this issue of unbelieving believers, or faith does not, uh, a faith that does not save. It's not the only place that it's spoken of. Probably the classic passage you're already thinking of in your mind is where? Matthew. Go to Matthew. Back to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21. <clears throat> The Lord Jesus is speaking here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says they, quote, unquote, believe in Jesus. Not everyone who says in the vernacular they have accepted Jesus. Jesus says will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. Note the first word, many. Not few, but many will say to me on that day, which is the day of judgment. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, look at all we've done for you. Look how diligently we worked for you. Look how committed we were to you. Look how we prayed to you. Look at our words. Look at, look at our works. They're so wonderful, Lord, for you. Professing believers. No doubt people that are fervently religious. The only problem is they're not genuine. They weren't truly converted. They weren't born again. They weren't born from above. In fact, they were a group of unbelieving believers gathered in front of him, professing faith in him, who have already literally spent centuries of torment under God's judgment, awaiting their final disposition in eternal condemnation because they weren't truly saved. These people are dead. Their eternal destiny has already been determined. They speak to the living. 
And the word speaks to the living. It's a warning passage. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Verse 23, and I will declare to them, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Christ says, look, their words, their works, all their religious devotion, all of their dedication can't stand up, won't stand up in the final judgment. They're all worthless. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. The, the word to know is an idiom that, that really speaks of an intimate relationship. It's a kind of a, a know that is used in the intimacy of marriage uh, uh, between a husband and wife. It was a word that was commonly used in the Old Testament, speaking of God's special intimacy with his people, the nation of Israel. So when Christ says, I never knew you, he's not saying, well, I, I don't know who you are or who you were or where you were. You know, he's saying, like, we don't have a personal, intimate relationship we never had. I know what you think about you and our relationship, but you and I don't have a relationship. You're not true followers. You're not my disciples. Ultimately, they didn't know him as Lord and Savior. They weren't true. They were false hypocrites. Perhaps, obviously from the text, there are a group of people who believe that they could call Jesus Christ Lord, yet live their lives any way they wanted. Not submitting to his lordship, not obeying him in every respect. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a present participle in the Greek, which indicates it's a continuous, regular action. In fact, the word practice... Uh, in the Greek is ergizomai. We, we, we get our word work, labor. These are people who profess faith in Christ, yet they work hard at evil. So says the Savior, the one who knows all men's minds. They work hard at evil. They're the evildoers. They, they work hard to break God's law. They are those who claim to be saved. They claim to be followers of Christ. Yet the continual habitual practice of their life is lawlessness, anomia, meaning without the law, iniquity, wickedness. And the profession of faith they have in Christ and the practice of the wickedness and iniquity in their life, they're completely incompatible, oppositical. For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. They were those who outwardly professed faith in Christ, but inwardly they were rebellious. As someone has said, they may have had God's name on their mouth, but rebellion was in their heart. That's these people. They were deceived, professing believers. They were deceived, professing Christians, if you will, unbelieving believers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is important to understand that true salvation produces obedience. John 3 and 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Hebrews 5 and 9. Having been made perfect, he, speaking of Christ, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. True salvation produces obedience. Salvation and obedience to the will of God are inseparable. And by way of the words of the Savior, the text, there are many false believers. Not just a few, but many. Many who come along and say they believe in Jesus, and Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Deceived, unbelieving believers with a faith or a belief in Jesus that is not salvific. Ultimately, they did not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Ultimately, they were not true followers. They were false. They were hypocrites. With a faith that could not save them. Again, it's a warning passage. Why is this warning passage? Because God is so kind in his tremendous mercy. These folks are dead. You're still living. He wants you to know the truth. 
The truth sets men free. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, what's the will of the Father? Well, the will of the Father is to believe upon Christ. It's to repent of your sin. It's to be redeemed, to be regenerate, to be born again, to obey Christ, to live a holy life. Because it's possible to have a superficial false faith in Christ that doesn't save from sin. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is the parable of the soils or the parable of a sower. Verse 3. He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. But because they did have, uh, because they had uh, no depth of uh, soil, when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now drop down to verse 18, because this is where Jesus explains the parable. He says, hear the, then the parable of the sower. Here's the interpretation, here's the explanation, here's the spiritual truth beside, behind the natural example that those who believe in Christ can understand. Now who's the sower? Now, obviously, the sower is Jesus Christ, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 37 confirms that. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. What's the seed? Verse 19 says the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. It's the gospel. It's, the, it's God's revelation. Luke 8 in his version says the seed is the word of God. So the seed is the word of God. The seed is the message of the kingdom about what God is like. It's the the message of the rule of Christ, the message of God's love for men, the message of God's grace and forgiveness, the message of the salvation that God brings to men who repent, the message of how men and women can get into the kingdom of God and escape the wrath that is coming. Again, it's it's the gospel. And you'll note in the parable there are four soils that represent four responses to the gospel, four kinds of hearers that are characteristic of in the day which was it was written and are characteristic in our day, in the day in which we live. Soil number one is the hard soil, the hard heart, the unresponsive hearer. When anyone, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. This is a man who's heard the word and is perishing and doesn't even know it. Because he has a love for sin, and it's his love for sin that's keeping him away from Christ, that is leaving him under condemnation and wrath. Because Satan, the little g-god of this world, has blinded his mind that he might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. The second kind of soil, verse 20, is the rocky soil or the shallow heart. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places... This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But here's the man who hears the gospel and gets very excited about it. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to heaven, right? Who wouldn't want to escape hell, right? Who wouldn't want to skip that kind of punishment? So here's a man, he hears the gospel, he responds with an emotional response, raises his hand, he walks forward, comes, sits in the chair or the bench or whatever. He, quote, unquote, accepts Jesus. He accepts Jesus without counting the cost. He doesn't really understand the significance of what he is doing. He's just caught up in the moment and wants to go where everybody else is going and certainly doesn't want to spend eternity in hell. So he signs up. But the truth is he's not genuine. No root. Everything is external. Everything is only temporary. Everything is superficial. There's no repentance, no true repentance, no true brokenness, no true contrition, no sorrow over sin. This man has merely, quote-unquote again, accepted Jesus without dealing with the issues of his own heart, the sinner in his own heart. Oh, but then trouble comes, you know, because we live in a fallen world, right? Trouble always comes. Verse 21. 
Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. Boy, you know what? Unfortunately, a lot of people fall into this category. A lot of people who fall into this category. A lot of people who have made some kind of superficial commitment to Christ. A lot of people who have, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus. A lot of people who are so excited at the beginning, but when the demands and the reality of living for Christ in a fallen world suddenly appear, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, they're not so sure. When reality of persecution comes, and opposition from the world, when trials and tribulations come that accompany, again, living for Christ in a hostile world, when their association with Jesus costs them something, it's only temporary and they flee from him. They immediately fall away because there's no depth in their relationship, no depth in their commitment to Christ, because there's been no true conversion. They may have, again, believed in Jesus, but these people have never been born again. These people have never been born from above. These people have never been regenerate. You know these kinds of people. You've heard their so-called profession of faith. You were there when they got baptized. Perhaps you met, you spent many hours discipling them. But when trouble and pressure and persecution came, they abandoned Christ. They abandoned the faith. They were not willing to take their stand for Christ. They weren't willing to suffer for Christ. They weren't willing to take up their cross and follow him. And again, irrespective of profession, they give evidence to the fact that they were never truly born again in the first place. First John nine or First John 2 and 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order to show that it might be shown that they were really not of us. False followers. Third kind of soil here in the parable, the, the weedy or the thorny soil, the strangled heart, really. Verse 22 And the one whom the seed was was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I I hope you noticed all along the fact that each of these categories very clearly, it says it over and over again, have heard the word. This is the man who hears the word. This is the man who hears the word. This is the man who hears the word. In this third situation here, this is the man who hears the, the word, but the world gets in the way. The world gets in the way. The worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, right? And it becomes unfruitful. This is the man who starts worrying about his job. Preoccupied with his job, preoccupied with his career, preoccupied with his house or his car or his boat, whatever. Starts living for the temporal, starts living for stuff. He's got so many issues and so much stuff, all he can do is worry about the issues and worry about the stuff and all the problems all of his stuff is causing him. It's preoccupied. Preoccupied with the things of the world. Preoccupied with things that are temporal. He has no time for reading his Bible and no time for prayer. The temporal, material things of life have crowded out the eternal and the spiritual. He begins chasing the world's definition of success in order to try to find contentment and happiness for his own heart. Therefore, this man... In this man's life, the word has become choked out. And as a result, the word does not do what it was sown in the heart to accomplish. That is to produce new creations in Christ that continually look every day more and more like the Savior. More and more conformed to the image of Christ. Individuals who are obedient to Christ, who follow Christ completely. Individuals who put Christ in the place of preeminence in their life. And the Bible says very clearly you can't serve, can't serve two masters. Can't serve both God and man. Both God and money, right? You can't serve God and the, or the things of the temporal world. Christ says if you do, you're going to hate one and love the other, despise one and cling to the other. Can't serve two masters. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the world and becomes chokes out the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now it's usually a slow process. 
the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the fact that you're just flat too busy, too busy, too busy at work, too busy at home, too busy around the house. Busyness and worry chokes out the world, chokes out the word, not all at once, but it's a gradual process. But the greed, the, the, the words, if you will, the, the weeds, if you will, they grow slowly and slowly, and there's just more and more of them, and you start to strangle out the spiritual life of a man, and that man becomes unfruitful. Because, listen, genuine salvation is always marked by fruitfulness. Genuine salvation is always marked by fruitfulness, not by one's claim to Christ, but by fruitfulness. A man can't come to Christ and be genuinely saved if his heart is preoccupied with the things of the world. Because those things will choke out the word of God and they'll choke out the life of God in that person. Now what you need to realize in the parable here is that weeds are natural. I don't know, have you done any gardening? Did you plant any weeds in your garden? They're there. They're a normal part of the soil. What's foreign to your garden is the seed. What's foreign to the soil of the heart is the word of God. It's that seed that has to be cultivated. It's that seed that has to be cared for. Weeds are natural. They just occur everywhere. If you want the seed of the word to grow, then you're going to have to pluck out the weeds that are choking out the word. And if you're going to walk with Christ, then you're going to have to get rid of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the busyness of uh, the world around you that you're a part of and the world that we live in. Or you're going to die spiritually and you're going to have to cultivate the word. Because the true mark of salvation is not profession. The true mark of salvation is fruitfulness. Fruit. True saving faith, true belief always manifests the fruit of the life of Christ in that person. I've told you that nobody in the text of the New Testament ever comes in contact with Jesus Christ in a salvific way and stays the same. Their life is always changed. You'll notice in the story, the hard soil produces no fruit. The soil, the rocky soil produces no fruit. The thorny soil produces no fruit. It becomes unfruitful. There's going to be a lot of people in hell who claim superficial association with Christ, but their lives were fruitless. Because attachment to Christ is not salvific. Or attachment to Christ is not salvation. John 5 and 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. John 15, 6, he's thrown away and they gather them, they cast them into the fire and they are burned. A superficial association with Jesus Christ is not salvific because a true believer manifests fruit, the evidence of Christ in their life, which takes us to the fourth soil. The fourth response to the gospel the good soil, the open heart, verse 23. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word of God and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. So there's some good soil out there. And the word of God comes, the gospel the gospel is sown, and some men repent or respond to it. Now they're going to hear the word, and they're going to understand it, and they're going to indeed bear fruit, just like Jesus says, bears forth more fruit, 100, some 60, some 30. And again, that's exactly what you see in the life of a true believer, a true follower of Christ, a true disciple. They believe and they bear fruit. What is fruit? Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Ephesians 5 and 9. The fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Romans chapter 1 says the fruit is leading other people, helping them, leading them to Christ, helping them to grow in Christ. Romans 7, our union with Christ, with the resurrected Christ. Romans 7, 4 is going to allow us to bear fruit for God. 
In the Old Testament, the same principle, Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Fruit, fruitfulness is always the mark of genuine salvation. Spiritual fruitfulness is is the evidence of the fact that God is at work in your life. Somebody who claims to know Christ and they have no fruit. No manifestation of the righteousness of God in their life, in deeds and in attitudes, then no matter what they say with their lips, that profession is not genuine, it's superficial. And one day it'll be exposed, one day that profession will be choked out by the world. Because, again, the truth is there's a kind of faith that's not a saving faith. There's a kind of a belief that is not salvific. There are many unbelieving believers. So how do you tell? How do you tell the truth from the false? And to be honest with you, it's an issue at times. Very easy to believe. It's very easy to be drawn by the crowd. It's very easy to, quote-unquote, accept Jesus. It's very easy to accept Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, especially in light of all those people out there that says, look, if you've got problems in your life, you come to Jesus. Boy, he's going to make everything better in your life, healthy, wealthy, wise, you know, just blessings upon blessings, right? There's all kinds of people out there hawking that kind of nonsense. A lot of people, you send me some money, believe in Jesus, and you'll get a lot more money. A lot of people want to believe in that kind of Jesus, right? But when you stop and you look at somebody's life and you look at the fruit in their life, even then sometimes it's hard. It's hard to be honest with you. You know people like this. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's somebody in the fellowship. Maybe it's somebody that you served alongside in ministry with. Maybe it's you. Am I genuine? Are they genuine? Are they truly saved? Am I truly saved? Have they come to a true knowledge of the truth, a true saving knowledge of the truth? Have I come to a true knowledge of, uh, of uh, saving knowledge of the truth? It's a legitimate question, and it really should be asked, because Paul said it should be asked. 2 Corinthians thirteen five: Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? And here it is, unless you fail the test. Say whatever you want. There's going to be an examination. There's going to be some fruit inspection going on. Do you not recognize this about yourself, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So the deception is real. An intellectual assent to uh, certain facts concerning Jesus is not equivalent to saving faith, since the demons themselves have that kind of faith. It's what it says in James 2 and 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And sometimes distinguishing from the true and the false is immensely difficult. In Matthew 13, which we don't have time to go into, also there's a parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, obviously, wheat is a good fruit, right? Uh, but, but there's a tear. It's, it's a noxious weed. And sometimes they grow up in the field right side by side. And, and, and you're, sometimes they're difficult to tell one from the other, especially when they're uh, younger. And the parable of the wheat and the tares suggests that sometimes you're just going to have to wait until the end. There's going to come a harvest. There's going to come a day of judgment. And there will indeed be a separation of the wheat and the tares, and God will do that work. Christ says, leave them alone for now. Don't pull them up. Just leave them alone. God will figure it out in the end. So how do we figure this all out? Go back to John 8. And let me wrap it up, at least for this morning. How do we figure this all out? John 8 and 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Verse 31, Jesus therefore was saying to those who had believed in him. Here's the benchmark. Jesus is going to tell you how to figure it out. Here's the standard to distinguish false faith from true faith. 
Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, if you continue following my teaching, if you hold on to my teaching, then you're my disciples. Those who are true followers of Christ, truly his disciples, with a real saving faith, continue, remain, abide, hold on to, and are obedient to his word. If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples, truly disciples of mine. So the true mark of true faith is to continue or to abide in Jesus' words. Now, it's not a condition for getting saved because salvation is by faith alone, but rather it is evidence of the fact that you're already saved. Right? Evidence of the fact that your faith in Christ is genuine. Evidence of the fact that you believed everything that God has taught in his word, that Christ has said in his word. I mean, Christ's word, if you believe in my word, Christ's word is summing up everything that, that God has said, everything that Christ has said uh, that he has done, that God has done uh, on your behalf for salvation at the cross. To continue in God's word, Christ's word speaks of perseverance, speaks of steadfastness of faith. It means you're going to end up where you started because you started with the word of God. It was the starting point for your salvation, uh, for saving faith in your life when you recognize that God's word said you were a sinner in a whole lot of trouble. You're in a desperate condition before a holy God, that you're a part of that crowd that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, yeah, I'm part of that group. I'm not going to deny it. You're part of that group that says that God's word says you're under, the, under divine condemnation. You're a just object of his wrath. And you saw you were in a whole lot of trouble, and only God through the person of Jesus Christ was your only hope. And you got that from the word of God. And you read the word of God and you saw that God in his kindness out of his tremendous love sent Christ into the world to pay the penalty for your sin, a penalty that you could not pay. You saw that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that you might find righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ because you don't have any of your own. And you repented. You turned from your sin to God. You turned to God in Christ. Through God's word, and you believe that God saves. God saves by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone, completely apart from works. So you stop trusting in yourself. You dropped that nonsense of your supposed goodness and your supposed good works, and you just got rid of that category because now you realize it doesn't exist. And what you did is you humbled yourself under the word of God. You called out for mercy and you relied totally and completely on what Christ has done on your behalf on the cross. And then you believe that God raised him from the dead and that he, by raising him from the dead, God the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice in total, in the full, the full payment of your sin. There's nothing else that needs to be done, nothing else that can be done because Christ has done it all. It is finished. If you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. So again, the mark of genuine saving faith is not mental or verbal profession. It's to believe upon Christ, and it's to continue to believe upon Christ, to abide in the word of God, the word of Christ, because the disciples, true disciples, true followers of Christ, listen, they are always word-oriented. Always. What have I been talking about all through this series? What is the thing that got people so upset with Jesus? It's his words. It's always the words of Christ that separate the believer from the unbeliever. The unbeliever hates the words of Christ. The true believer loves the word of Christ. Amen? Loves the word of Christ. Loves God's word. The true disciple, the true follower of Christ realizes <clears throat> that it's God's word. It's the word of God's grace which is able to build them up. Acts 20 and 32. The true believer, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that it by, by it he may grow in respect to salvation. 1 Peter 2 and 2. True believer loves the word, longs for the word, delights in the word, and continues in it never departing from it, holding on to it dearly and desperately, carefully, 
Because it's his only hope. It's his only help. It's the only thing that takes him to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 32, who said, Therefore, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 1, verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In the world in which we live, there's no such thing as truth. Truth has been largely abdicated by the unbelieving world all around us. Therefore, because the, word, the world has abdicated truth, it's lost all of its hope. We live in a world that has rejected the light of the gospel, has rejected the light of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is a world without hope, a world that has rejected truth incarnate, can't make a logical decision, because it's a world that has been captured, captivated, taken in as a prisoner by Satan and his kingdom of darkness. Not so the true believer. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, the true believer always has hope, because the true believer has been delivered, freed, emancipated. Abide in my word. You are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Listen, the believer has been freed from the penalty of sin and death. Amen? The believer has been completely freed from who he used to be in Adam, changed, transformed because of Christ. Knowing the truth, knowing the word, hanging on to Christ makes one free on a spiritual level, free from the lies of Satan that everybody else around us are buying into. The lies of Satan that hold everybody into bondage and captivity, free from condemnation, free from judgment, free from spiritual ignorance, free from uh, the ravages of spiritual death, free from darkness. And in the context of John 8 here, the, the freedom that Christ is going to talk about is freedom from the overwhelming power of sin in a person's life. If you abide in my word, <clears throat> then you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Right? Every true believer has been liberated because he's hold on, held on to Christ and he holds on to Christ's word always. What did Jesus Christ say at the beginning of his ministry? The first time he gets up in public, goes to the temple, they say, give me the scroll. He opens it and he says these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are downtrodden. Right? To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Amen? That's the gospel. Freedom in Christ. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for that wonderful truth that you have provided for us. There is false faith. There's false followers. There's a false profession, but there is a true faith. Faith that saves is not because of anything that we have done, but it's because of everything that you have done. And it's all because of your kindness and mercy to men, because you desire that they would not perish, but come to a knowledge of the truth, repent of their sin, and embrace Christ, who is true truth, truth incarnate. We praise you and thank you for the warning of the Scripture and the hope that's found in Christ, the truth that sets us free. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.